ladies and gentlemen, we are having some technical difficulties. It'll be a little bit before we start. The computer crashed. <laughs> I mean, I can play some country music because it's everybody's favorite. So. Oh, it's on. Are we on? Welcome, Lighthouse Community Church. We are so glad to see you here this morning. I love it being opening day for the first time that we get to see everybody's face. You guys look good with all the temperature taking and masking and distancing, and you still look beautiful. That's great. Well, except for, you know, there's a couple of you. But we're glad they're all with us this day. Well, you know what? Whatever went on the last week, last month, whatever thing else, God brought us through it. Amen. So today we're going to scatter together. We're going to do some worship together. We're going to ask God to open the eyes of our hearts that we might praise, worship, and honor him this day. Whatever stuff you're bringing with you, you're going to leave it here with him because he is worthy. Here we go. Let's ask him. Open the eyes.
Seven, eight months, hasn't it? <laughs> so we're going to spend a little time with some invitation. Just come to the altar. All the stuff that's gone on the last six, seven, eight, nine months, seems like ten years, we can bring them to Jesus. If you want to come today and come down here and pray on the altar, feel free to. Just gonna spend some time, let the Holy Spirit come in. Are you hurting and broken within? Overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Jesus is calling. Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is calling. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with.
Lord, we pray this day. Lord, you have been part of every single one of our households, whether we're here in this building, watching around the country, you have been a part of all of us. You have held us up in some of the hardest times that we've ever faced for the fears, all the troubles, the things we've gone through. And God, yet you were faithful and brought us through. We know it's not over yet, and we're asking for that quickly to come, Lord Jesus. 
We're asking for the Holy Spirit to fill our lives that we may be a light of, of hope and, and, and shining through the darkness around us. God, we pray as Lighthouse Community Church, whether we're in California, Texas, New York, Arizona, Oregon, Washington, wherever we are, God, we're just asking now that you would make us your light. May we be your representatives in a world that seems to right now be searching for the answers because we know the answer. We thank you, O oh Lord, that this day our pastor is going to be sharing from Paul's words in Philippians. May you bless him, touch him, Father. May his words cut to our hearts. Give him strength, Father, this day and wisdom that as he shares. And Father, if there's anybody watching, if there's anybody standing here in this room who does not know the name of Jesus as Lord and Savior, may they not leave today or stop today or forget today to make that commitment. And then to let us know so we can celebrate the coming of a new one to the family of God. We pray your blessings upon this day. We ask that you accept our times of worship and praise, Father, for your glory and honor and to lift up the name of Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's good to see many of your faces in here today. I haven't seen you in like six months. Hi. Hi. Now, Darlene, you sat front and center. They can see you at home. So you're setting an example for everyone. Is this a good idea? I love you. Caleb, can you please keep her under control today? Thank you. All right. Hey, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Last week, we kind of did an overview. We gave the context for it. Uh, for those of you who may have missed that or, or glazed over because you were thinking that football was starting soon, let me just remind you briefly uh, of what we are reading. Okay, this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. He's writing as he is chained in captivity, probably in Rome, awaiting trial. He may be either in a jail cell or under house arrest. Um, and he's writing to a group of people, the Philippians, Christians living in the Roman city of Philippi, uh, to encourage them. He's writing them, one, because they have been financially supporting him throughout his public ministry for about the last decade. And specifically, they had just sent him a financial gift to help him in his captivity. And so he's writing to say thank you. But he takes this opportunity to talk as a father to his children, because in a lot of ways, Paul viewed this particular church as one of his spiritual kids. So he's writing to encourage them as they find themselves surrounded by people who just don't believe what they believe. Whereas they are worshiping Jesus as the Christ, God's anointed Redeemer, they worship the Emperor of Rome as their King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so he's writing to encourage them, but he's also writing uh, to just breathe new purpose into the way that they're living in a world that is watching. And I think that it's, although it was written 2,000 years ago, it is one of the most relevant, powerful past, uh, you know, letters for us to read here and now. It's been one that's been speaking to me over the last six months, and I'm just so excited to finally get to dive into it with you. So, without further ado, let's go ahead and begin reading Paul's letter to the Philippians. Philippians 1, chapter 1. Paul and Timothy... Servants of Christ Jesus to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank God every time I remember you. 
In all of my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to, to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I'm in chains or I'm defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And so this is my prayer for you, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you might be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now we're going to stop there. That's as far as we're going to get today. And this is an introduction that really sounds a whole lot like just about any letter you might pick up in Paul's day because there was a formula for writing letters. They would all begin roughly the same. The person writing would introduce themselves. They would identify who they're writing to. They would give a brief salutations, greetings, or hello, or, you know, in Paul's case, grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Then there would be some sort of a blessing or prayer. And in a lot of ways, Paul follows that exactly. And if you have read any of his other letters, you begin to feel like there's a, a similar pathway, at least at the beginning. And because of that, it's often, I don't know about you, I'll speak for myself, Oftentimes, I find myself almost glazing over that section because I want to get to the meat of his message, right? I'm not really listening to what he's saying there because I figure he's just introducing it, and I want to get to what he actually has to say. And yet, Paul is never one to waste words, and all Scripture is God-breathed. Every word of this is helpful to us, and this is no different. There are so many beautiful nuggets of truth and so many deep themes that run all the way throughout the rest of his letter that are introduced here. And if we just glaze over it, we're going to miss a whole lot of fruit. And so what I want to do today is I want to just lean into this introduction and I want to pull out, there's about three different terms that are in here that I want to redefine for us so that we can begin to recognize the, th the through lines that are going to flow all the way through the rest of the letter. So, the first one I want to look at is in the very first verse where Paul introduces himself and Timothy. Who are, These are the two that are writing this letter. And Paul says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now underline that word servants if it's your Bible. If you're borrowing one, you can just mentally underline it. Or if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that one. The word servants is an innocuous one, isn't it? I mean, Jesus called himself a servant, so it's no big deal for us to, to hear that and go, okay, so they're servants of Jesus. However, this is a case where the, the translators of the Bible have chosen to translate it in such a way that it avoids some awkward tension. Because the word servant there isn't actually servant. If Paul had intended to write servant, he could have easily used the Greek word diakonos, from which we get deacon, because that is the word that he often uses when he's talking about servants in the church. That's not the word he chooses. Also, a thing that I want us to recognize is that Paul does not begin by introducing himself as an apostle. That's also a way that he has traditionally introduced himself. In most of his other letters, he is constantly introducing himself as Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. 
And the apostle is more of a formal title, a sent one from Christ. It's similar to me saying, hey, I'm Pastor Eric, right? It's a formal title that lends an air of credibility so that the people listening will give more credence to his words that follow. But he doesn't choose to use that here. In part, I would suggest, because the Philippian church is different to him than just about every other church that he writes to. Not only did he plant them as a church, so he has relationship, but they have been regularly supporting him. And he has a, they have a really, really close place in his heart. And so he doesn't need to try to establish his credibility. They know him. And so instead, he chooses to humble himself by calling him not a diakonos, not a servant, but a doulos. And doulos is a word that for us can be translated in our Bibles if you look at it. Sometimes it's translated bondservant, bondslave. But most often, and to Paul's audience, they would have heard very clearly the word slave. That's what they would have understood. Now, slave is a word that carries a tremendous amount of baggage in our culture, doesn't it? And for good reason, right? Slavery, and it, that, that harkens back to all of the dark chapters of America's history and, and throughout the world. Slavery, where, where one person forces themselves over another and says, you must do what I command. You have no will of your own. And, and, and so there's good reason, I think, why the translators chose to go with a more innocuous word, like servant, because it gets to the same heart of what Paul's trying to get at without all of the baggage. However, Paul's audience would have been very familiar with the concept of slavery because, remember, they're living in the empire of Rome, in which we know during Paul's days about one-third of the population was slaves. About 60 million people were slaves in that day and that age. In fact, many of the people that Paul was writing to living in Philippi that believed in Jesus Christ were probably slaves themselves. So when Paul says, Paul and Timothy, slaves to Jesus Christ, that concept isn't all that foreign to them. And for Paul, he had, no, he had absolutely no problem identifying himself as a slave because there was no better metaphor for the relationship he had with his Lord because he recognized that he was not his own. He had been bought, purchased with a price, that price being Jesus' body and his blood poured out on the cross. That was the cost of Paul when Jesus bought him out of slavery to sin so that he could be completely and utterly focused on the purpose and the will of his master, Jesus Christ. And when Paul says, I am a slave, what he's saying is, I no longer live for myself. I'm no longer the captain of my ship. I live to bring about the purpose and the plans of my master, Jesus Christ. When I wake up in the morning, I don't ask myself, hmm, what do I want to do today? My first question is, Jesus, what do you want me to do today? When I, I, I make a sale of a tent and money comes in, or when, when the Philippian church sends me money and I get this check in the mail, I don't ask myself, hmm, how do I want to spend my money? God, how would you have me invest this? Even when it comes to giving, not, you know, Jesus, how much of my money do you want? But rather, Jesus, how, what do you want me to do with all of this that you've entrusted to me? It's a totally different posture. 
Because Paul was not looking to make his own name great. He was looking to make Christ's name great. He wasn't looking to build his kingdom. He was looking to build Jesus' kingdom. And that changed everything. And he was not ashamed about that, as much as that can be a thorny word for us in our culture. For him, it was the heartbeat of what he lived for. And as we continue through this book, we're going to begin to recognize just how much being a slave to Jesus shaped his worldview and shaped the way, shaped his values. And so Paul and Timothy, slaves to Jesus. Now, as slaves, one word definition or job description is this, obedience. Right? That's what a slave exists to do, to obey their master's will. And here's the reason why Paul had no problem calling Jesus his master and himself Jesus' slave. Because he recognized that we are all slaves to something. Maybe we're slaves to our own appetites. Maybe we're slaves to a job because we're pursuing the almighty dollar so that we can be a little more comfortable. Maybe we're slaves to public perception and other people's opinion, which is why we spend so much stinking time on social media seeing how many thumbs up we get to stuff we post. Maybe we're slaves to fear, and so we spend our lives surrounding ourselves with pseudo-saviors like a political party or, 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 or something, like a, a job or a relationship that can somehow shore up a feeling that we are not sufficient in and of ourselves or that we're not safe. Paul put it this way in, in his letter to the Romans. I think this is a beautiful articulation of this concept that we're all slaves to something. He says, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey? Whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience to Christ, which leads to righteousness. Okay? We are all slaves to something. The question is, what are you slaves to? And this is a question I woke up this morning at about 5.30 in the morning. I was just laying there. And that question, what are you a slave to, just kept kind of rattling around in my mind. And I began to ask myself, well, how, how, do you, how do you answer that question? I'd like to say I'm a slave to Jesus. Personally, I'd love to be able to say that. But is that true of me? Are the first thoughts when I wake up in the morning, Jesus, what do you want me to do today? You set my schedule for me. Or am I thinking more about the, what am I going to do to entertain my kids and just get through the day, right? We're almost to school. School starts on Thursday for our kids. We're very excited about this. They get to go in person, which is even better for all of us, right? So, so there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and we're just praying it's not an oncoming train. Um, but, but we're just like, okay, how do we get through the next couple of days and get to, to the beginning of school? Here's a, here's a way that you can answer that question. Just look at the way that you spend your money. Remember Jesus said, where your money, you know, where your treasure is, your heart follows. So look at where your, the next time you get your credit card bill in, just look at where you're spending your money. I spend a lot of money on food. I think we think, and, I, and when I go to the store, I tend to come away with a lot of ice cream and things like that. That lately has been my consolation in this season. Everything's burning, so I'm going to eat ice cream, right? Um, here's another one that really challenges me. 
when you wake up in the morning, what is the first thing you reach for? My guess is, for many of us, it's our phones. And when you do so, what is the first app that you open? That'll tell you a lot about what you are obeying, what has control over you. It's just something for us to be con consider. Because we are all slaves to something. We choose to obey something. Whether it's our flesh, whether it's our sin nature that gravitates towards things that bring comfort and consolation and, and, and control, or to Christ. And when you look at it that way, it's not all that bad that Paul calls himself a slave to Jesus because there's way worse things that you could be slaved to, right? So Paul and Timothy, slaves of Jesus Christ, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi together with the overseers and the deacons. Now let's pause again. And I want you to underline that word, God's holy people. Now, the word, again, the translators have done the footwork to help get to the heart of what that means. But in so doing, they've, they've caused us to kind of take a step away from what the original language was saying. The original language, those three words, God's holy people or God's holy ones, is one word. The word hagios, which means holy ones, ones who are set apart, or to boil it down into one word, saints. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, writing to the saints in Philippi. Now when we listen to it and hear it in that sense... That's another one of those words that carries a tremendous amount of baggage into our 21st century context. Because a lot of times we hear that word saints through the kind of the Roman Catholic perspective. That there are certain people who have lived such monumentally set apart lives that they're just different. They're holier than everybody else. And even when they've died, there have been certain... You know, miracles that have been attributed to them, so much so that there is a belief that these people are now in heaven and they have some control over life. And so instead of praying to God because, you know, he's God, he's really busy, and instead of praying to Jesus because he's super busy too, we pray to the saints who then bring our prayers to God and stuff, stuff happens, right? That is the way that we tend to hear that. And so we get uncomfortable with the word saints, especially because we all know ourselves. I know myself. I know I'm no saint, especially by that definition. And so it seems a little awkward that he would call the believers in Philippi saints. But the problem isn't with Paul's word choice. The problem is with our definition. So let me redefine that word for us as well. You see, the people living in Philippi who were believers in Jesus weren't any better, weren't any more set apart than you or I. They were sinful they were selfish. They dealt with fear. They were as human as you or I were. And in fact, Paul will talk about the way they interact and the conflict that they're having and all of those kind of things, that they're still works in progress just like we're works in progress. So obviously when he's saying saint, he's not saying somebody who is living a perfect life. Instead, what he's saying is that this person there's something radically different about them, but the difference is about a relationship with Jesus. 
Because they are sinners, but they're no longer defined by their flaws. They're no longer defined by their sins. Because of their relationship with Jesus, they're a new creation. The old has gone. That sin in their life, even the stuff that continues to eat at them, that no longer is their identity. They're a new creation. The new has come, and that it's come through their relationship with Jesus. So they can aptly be called holy ones, saints, which for me the best definition I could use is just simply a saved sinner. That's what a saint is, is a saved sinner. I'm one, and if you have said yes to Jesus Christ, then you are one as well. You are a saint. You're a work in progress. You're a saved sinner. But here's the thing about saints. Our identity has shifted because of a relationship with Jesus. So we don't do things in order to earn our standing with Jesus, right? Good works are not a prerequisite to being called a saint. But because we are saints, because we identify with Jesus, because we say yes to him, The way we live our lives matters because our lives are on display and people are watching. And as a response to his love, as a response to his grace, that is why we choose to live differently. And so we would, Paul would say to them, you are saints who called Jesus Christ your Lord. And you are now looking to do his will in this life. And when you hear it that way, you begin to recognize that a saint and a sinner, or a saint and a slave to Christ are synonymous. They're very, very similar terms. A saint, this is my identity. But because I'm a saint, because I've been saved by Christ, I want to live differently. And I am a slave to Jesus Christ. I identify myself as his bondservant, and I want to do what he wants me to do. It is my choice to do this. We'll talk about the choice aspect of that a little bit more next week. But for now, as we continue on, I, I hope that what you will see in the rest of what Paul writes is that this all flows out of our relationship with Jesus. It begins there. So he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord, Jesus Christ. That word Lord, again, is a word that would be used of a master of a slave. It's not not some ethereal word that we use for somebody up in heaven. No, this is the owner, is the Lord, the curios. And then he goes on in verse 3, I thank God every time I remember you. In all of my prayers for you, I always pray with joy. Underline that word joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm confident of this. That he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now if there's one word that sums up for many people the book of Philippians is that word joy. Joy or or its counterpart the word rejoice is used 14 times throughout the short book of Philippians. It is without a doubt the most joy-filled letter that Paul writes. I think in part because of his relationship to the church in Philippi, in part because he's grateful for the way they've been partnering with him. But it's important for us to remember 
that Paul's understanding of joy is very different from our understanding of joy. Because in our 21st century ears, we tend to use joy as synonymous with happiness. And then we suggest that our joy flows out of our circumstances. Right? So long as I'm healthy, so long as I'm wealthy, and most importantly, so long as I'm comfortable, I'm joy-filled. But the moment that any of those things are called into question, the moment a relationship starts going off the rails, or the moment I am forced to wear a face mask, or the moment that I don't get to go to play basketball or do this or that because of all of this stuff, the moment that my life and my freedoms are impinged upon, even remotely, my joy goes out the window. But not so with Paul. Because let's remember the context of where Paul is writing out of. In his most joy-filled letter, he is writing it from prison, awaiting a trial that very likely could result in his death, his execution. And yet, he is still overflowing with joy. How come? Because for Paul, his joy is not tied to or not hitched to his circumstances. His joy is hitched to his relationship with Jesus, and because of that, the advancement of the gospel, it has everything to do with, I have focused my mind on being about my master's business. And so long as my master's business is advancing, then regardless of what happens to me, I have joy. This will become even more evident next week as we keep reading the letter, go a little bit deeper. But suffice it to say for this week, the joy that he expresses in his writing to the Philippians is in part because they have been partners with him in the gospel. Let's read this in verse 4. In all of my prayers for you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, in what ways were they partners? Were they just, hey, Paul, we agree with you. We're, we're supportive of you. Good job. Well, in part, yes, right? They, they have the same heart. They have the same desire to see the kingdom of God advance. But most importantly for Paul in this instance is the fact that they have been financially supporting him. They have, you know, their money has been, has been revealing kind of where their heart is. So they, even though they're not on the front lines, even though they're not in jail with Paul, they're still his partners in ministry because they have been financially supporting him. But... And, and by the, I should mention that this isn't just out of their excess. They haven't been financially supporting him because they have lots and lots of money. In fact, in his second letter to the Corinthians, can we throw this up there? This is what he writes about the church in Philippi. This is in, so he's, he's bragging on the Philippians to the Corinthians. He says, in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able to. And even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. In other words, the Philippians weren't giving out of their excess. They were giving 
sacrificially, painfully. They were scraping together what they needed to live on and saying, you know what? We are so committed to the advancement of the gospel that we're going to send, we're going to, you know, we're going to send what we need. But I should mention that Paul's joy is not simply because he got money. Far too often the church has seemed focused on just getting people's money. But for Paul, the reason it brings him joy is because their giving sacrificially is a tangible proof that their hearts are in alignment with Jesus. That they truly view Jesus as their Lord. And so as their money goes, their heart is following, and that brings him joy. And I just want to pause for a moment. Because I know that in a lot of ways, this last six months has been awful. It's been hard on us personally. It's been hard on us relationally, perhaps in our families. It's been really hard for our family with our kids, just having to kind of be separated from friends and and, and all the rhythms of things we were looking forward to, junior lifeguards and other things, have just been thrown out the window. And it's been really hard as a church. Because even though we are the church, this building isn't, one of the things I look forward to every week is getting to see your faces, getting to do relationship with one another, being able to encourage one another face-to-face, and we haven't been able to do that, and that has been painful. And yet, I just want to uh, thank you for your faithfulness in giving and continuing to support the ministry of the church. It hasn't looked like what we're used to in the same way that the Philippians continued to provide to Paul, even when his ministry didn't look the same as what he had set out to do. And I'm grateful for God's faithfulness to our church for providing. But the reason that I'm grateful for your generosity is because I know for many of you it's, it's sacrificial, especially when you don't know where the pay, next paycheck is coming from, and you don't know what tomorrow holds. And at this point, none of us have known what tomorrow holds. For six months, it's always been a, what is tomorrow going to look like? And for those of you who have continued to faithfully give, that brings me great joy because it is a testimony to your faithfulness in God, your trust in God that then overflows into your I'm in. And as much as this season, let's just pivot a little bit and, and, and step back because I will confess that I have not really enjoyed the last six, six months. My circumstances, and I would, I, I would guess I'm speaking for a lot of you, my circumstances have been rather uncomfortable over these last six months. I've missed you. I've missed our regular rhythms. I would not choose to walk back through this season. I wouldn't call it fun, and it hasn't been a particularly happy season. And yet, when I take a page out of Paul's book and I step back and I begin to look at these last six months through the lens of the kingdom of God, when I begin to just say, if I truly am a slave to Jesus and I want his purposes and his plans to be done, Let me just reframe what has happened. And all of a sudden I begin to see that there's a lot of reason to find joy over these last six months. You remember um, at the beginning of the year, 
we talked about as a church that we wanted to be a community that wasn't about going to church, but that we would be the church. That we would be the light in our spheres of influence. Remember that, for those of you who are here? Well, we've been forced to do that, haven't we? Because we've been forced to close the doors. And so the only way we got to be the church was to be the church in our community. The only way that we were able to kind of live out our Christian walk was in our own spheres of influence. One of the things that we all balked at was when we were told that we weren't able to sing together. But one of the things I appreciate when I step back from that is the the reminder that worship is so much more than a song. Worship looks like the way that we treat a neighbor, especially a neighbor that doesn't agree with us philosophically or, or, or politically. The way that we interact with others online, what we do with our money, what we do with our time, how we treat our family when we're not doing well ourselves, all of those, how, how we care for others when we ourselves feel like our world is off the rails, those are also acts of worship. And for many of us, you've been worshiping more over these last six months than you have for the previous years. That brings me joy. One of the things that's, that's really important to me, one of the things that I feel like God has given me a unique burden for, for our city, is this idea that there's not 55 churches in Costa Mesa, there's one. Jesus is the head of all of us. And even though we meet in different places, we're not in competition with one another. And toward that end, at the beginning of the year, I'd planned on gathering the pastors together for about four times this year. And then COVID hit. And over the last six months, we have been meeting regularly every Wednesday at 4 p.m. once a week. The pastors have been able to, to go deeper in our relationship. And it's not just relationally that we've grown, but there have been beautiful fruit that's come out of those relationships. As, as the, what do we do? Do we open? How, how do we respond to our governor and these impediments that are being placed upon us? We were able to process those things together. And then when the racial tension began to rise up and there was protests, the pastors began weekly to process together. What does this look like? To be a church that is working towards health and growth. And it's not that we were all 100% in agreement. We're just processing together. We're iron sharpening iron. And then the fruit that came out of it as we learned how to be the church beyond the box. Over the course of the last six months, the amount of families that have been cared for with food boxes and other necessities that were delivered to their home has has grown exponentially. Bill and others of you have been really instrumental in making that happen, and I'm really grateful for it. We've had not one but two big uh, prayer gatherings where for, you know, 24-7, a week of prayer. We did it once for the city. Some 20 to 25 churches participated for Actually, three weeks leading up to Easter. And then we decided, let's, let's just broaden this. And we extended it to the Orange County. And we had a whole week of prayer and fasting and worship together all over Zoom. And, and there were something like 200 churches that participated in that. Perhaps the most beautiful picture of the church 
being the church beyond the box was this idea of the enough for all fund. You remember early on, there was a stimulus that was given to help many of us who were out of work for those two and a half months or so. But there's a large contingent of people, particularly in West Side Costa Mesa, who didn't receive any financial support, whether they didn't have a social security number or other reasons why they did not get help, but they have been impacted by COVID as well. And so a few of the churches in West Side Costa Mesa said, how do we care for the least in our community that are the most impacted by this? For some of us, that stimulus money was gravy. For others, not getting it was the matter of determining whether or not they were going to eat or not. So they said, let's do this. Let's create a fund where people who are financially impacted can apply for funds. And in order to make this happen, we need to put our own money into this. And so three churches banded together, and they put something like $50,000 of their own money to seed the Enough for All fund. And then they started letting people know, and they got, I think really quickly they had something like 500 people, 500 families apply, and they started getting tons of Christ followers from all over Costa Mesa who began to financially give towards this. And up to this point, I believe the numbers are something like they have given away over $800,000 to over 800 families. But they still have, I believe, about 80 families that have applied, and they're about $80,000 short. They have every penny that's come in has gone back out. Specifically, two families that have applied. And not everybody that applies gets it because some people are asking for wrong reasons. They are being intentional about where the funds go. So if you're interested in participating in helping them finish caring for these last 80 families or so, you can go to enoughforallfund.com just to see about it and see if that's something you want to give towards. I would encourage you to check it out because it is a beautiful example of how the church in Costa Mesa has gotten creative in the way that we love our neighbors. And that brings me joy. Even though this has been a really uncomfortable season, one I wouldn't choose to go back through, I see the way that the kingdom of God has advanced through this season. I would imagine you could add your own examples to that. And so Paul celebrates the ways that God is working in and through the Philippian church, even though there's still a work in progress in this, this verse, uh, verse 6, that we know so well. He says, you know, I, I, I pray with joy when I remember you because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus, until Jesus returns. I'm confident that you saints in Philippi are works in progress and Jesus is working in your midst and he's going to continue to help you grow. And that brings me joy. And then he finishes this beautiful introduction in verse 9 with a prayer. And this is where we're going to end this morning. He says this, this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, all to the glory and praise of God. Now there's a ton stuffed into there, and I, I, I am not going to do it justice in the couple of minutes I'm going to spend on it. But here's the gist of what Paul is saying. You are saints 
That's who you are. The old is gone, the new has come. You're no longer defined by your mistakes, your addictions, your imperfections. You're defined by your relationship with Jesus. And because you are saints, because you have been saved into relationship with him, you have the opportunity to be about his business, to be his ambassador of hope into this context that God has planted you. So my prayer is that you would continue to grow in your ability to know how to represent him in every situation. May your love for your family, for your neighbors, for your enemies, for the people who think diametrically opposed to what you think, may your love for them continue to grow in knowledge and depth of insight so that you will know in any and every situation how best to act, not for your own benefit, but for their benefit. So that the name of Jesus Christ is glorified and others would begin to recognize that he truly transforms lives. May, may the love of Jesus Christ so well up in you that, and may your love be tempered with wisdom and discernment so that you will know how to treat that person that just irritates, that irritates you to no end on social media. May the love of Jesus be tempered with wisdom and discernment that can only come from God so that you will know how to treat your spouse or your children or your parents, Ethan and Grayson, when they don't know how best to care for you. May you still choose to love and respond with gentleness and humility. We're coming into an election season that is going to be very, very, has been and will continue to be very contentious. It will be very easy to just get swept up into it and begin to look at other people who think differently than us as the enemy. To begin to look at one political party or the other as evil. Neither of them are perfect. Guys, our country is hurting right now. May we be people who can enter into the messiness and not be overcome by it. May we not continue to look to one political party or the other as our Savior. We already have a Savior. We don't need another. No, po no politician is our Savior. May God give us wisdom in how we navigate through this and how we interact with people who have been so caught up in it that this is dominating their thoughts. And let me remind us that before we think that we just need to try harder and do better, right? As if, as we're saying, may our, may our love grow. Oh, I just gotta, I've got to be more discerning. I've got to try harder. I've got to love people better. As if this is fruit that we can somehow tie onto our branches. We know that that's not how fruit grows. You don't tape it on. I think a lot of us kind of approach life that way. Oh. Dang it, I yelled at my kids again. i got to try harder. And so you, 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 you try harder, and then all of a sudden, you know, if it's just a mask that you're putting on, then it's just a matter of time before that mask 
is ripped away and, and, and your true heart is exposed. So how do we really change? Well, it comes from relationship. It has to happen internally. It doesn't start externally. It starts internally. You don't fake it till you make it. It begins in our relationship with Jesus. Notice what he says here in verse 11. May you be filled with the fruit of righteousness or right living that comes through Jesus Christ. The only way that fruit will be born in our life, and the fruit I'm talking about is the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace in the midst of ridiculous circumstances, patience when life isn't going the way we anticipated, Kindness, we could all use a little bit more of that in this world, couldn't we? Goodness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the kind of fruit that is born out of the Holy Spirit working in and through our lives. And Jesus, in, in John 15, articulated it this way. Guys, I'm the vine, and you are a branch that's connected to me. And if you stay connected to me, if you rest in me, if we actually have relationship and you are choosing to spend time with me, then your life will bear fruit naturally. You won't have to try. You won't have to tape it on. You won't have to put on a happy face mask when inside you're frowning. If you abide in me, you will bear fruit that will last. But apart from me, if you try to do it on your own strength, you can't accomplish anything of any lasting value. No, no fruit will grow. So may we be the kind of people whose lives bear fruit that is in keeping with the fact that we have an abiding relationship with Jesus. But we don't do it so that people go, oh man, Glenn's such a nice guy. Right? Or, wow, Diane is just an amazing one. I want to be like her. No, we don't do it so our own name will be made great. What do we do it for? Verse 11, the very last part. To the glory and praise of God. From Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. Everything in our life that is of any worth is born out of our relationship with Jesus. It starts there. And if you don't have that together now, then it doesn't matter how good your circumstances are. You will never experience the joy of the Lord that He designed us for. It doesn't matter your circumstances. And this is important for those of us whose lives don't look the way that they anticipated. May we be the kind of people who find peace in the midst of really difficult times. May we be the kind of people who have hope, even when the people around us are losing theirs. Guys, we don't have to try to earn God's love. He's already lavished it upon us, and He showed us in the most painful way possible that he loves us he chooses us even when we're unlovable even when we've acted like little turds he still loves us and he doesn't flush us down the drain sorry that was more vivid than i anticipated <laughs> but it works um he loves us 
He loves us deeply. He loves us sacrificially. So you are, if you have said yes to Jesus Christ, you are not a sinner. You are a saint. That is your identity. May you choose to be his slave. May you choose to order your life around his and say, God, I want your will to be done. And this, this is where things get painful. And this is where I'm going to pray that God help us to grapple with what this means. May we be the kind of people who hold our circumstances out to God and say, you know, this isn't necessarily where I saw myself. This isn't necessarily comfortable. But God, I want to be right where you want me. Even if that means that my circumstances are uncomfortable. Even if it means that I don't have the job that I hoped I would have or the relationship that, that I hoped it would be like or that my life wouldn't look, that I wouldn't have all the toys that everybody else has. I wouldn't live in the kind of house that I anticipated. God, at the end of the day, my circumstances take a back seat to your kingdom. May you help yourself to my life so that I can find joy irrespective of what's going on in the world around me. Use me to advance your kingdom. That's my prayer for us. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for using imperfect people like us to reflect your perfect love. We know we don't do it perfectly, and you use us anyway. Thank you for Thank you for joy that only comes from you. Thank you that you will allow us to represent you. And we give you our lives. We give you our expectations. We give you our hopes and our dreams and our fears and our faults. And we say, God, here I am. Use me. May we rest in our identity as saints and live as joy-filled slaves who want nothing more than to see your will done because we have this hope that this world is not all there is. That your kingdom is advancing. And we pray that it would advance in and through us. Jesus, in your holy name, amen. Let's worship together. Song in itself is not what you have.
finish today. Thank you all for being here, for being with us out there in the, in the streaming land. We're really glad that you're here and we just, the pastor requested a very special song. So we're doing this for our, because we love it. And Greg Wake. What a fellowship. What a joy. That 
That deserves a big yee-haw, right? Uh, never, ever tell your worship leader what you don't like in terms of, you know, I really don't like rap. Let's see if you, what you do with that one. It's so fun to have you guys back. I really, really miss you. Now, yeah, we can clap for that. Hey, um. Because we're not going to be passing stuff, if you have offering that you want to give, there's boxes in the back. And those of you who are at home, you can just go to lighthousecommunity.com and you can give through the website. If you have prayer requests, we want to know them. Please, though, because we're not passing stuff right now, if you write something down, you can drop that in the, in the uh, boxes in the back. Or you can just email pastor at lighthousecommunity.com. If we can pray for you for anything, we're still gathering via Zoom every week to pray through our, for our church and for everything we know about, we want to know about it. But now let me go ahead and pray this blessing written by Paul for us. Lighthouse Community Church, 
May your love abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day that Christ returns, filled with a fruit of right-heartedness and right-living that comes, can only come through Jesus Christ. And may we do it all to the glory and the praise of our Father God. Lighthouse Community Church, have a wonderful week. Go in grace. Thank you, Pastor.